0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that you have revealed yourself in your Word, and you have revealed yourself in the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, reflecting upon uh, your provision and protection For the infant Lord Jesus, Father, we pray that you might also help us to understand and to be strengthened in our faith that that in the same way you watch over each of us and you provide for us and you protect us. And even though we go through difficult circumstances, even though we go through life-threatening situations, and even though everything around us may seem in a chaotic mess, we know that you control history. And that you have our, our lives in your hands and that, that we can never be, uh, permanently injured or hurt, but that we have safety and security in your plan. Father, we pray that you might encourage us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting how sometimes things come together. We don't, uh, we plan out our hymns quite a bit ahead of time. And so it's not as if we can sit down on Monday morning and think, oh, I know what's going to be taught on Sunday morning, and so we'll select these hymns to sing. We plan them out much further in advance than that. And so many times the hymns that we sing, just by pure chance, you know, fit well. And as we sang this morning, It Is Well With My Soul, that is such a perfect hymn leading into, uh, I think, the thematic topic of the last half of Matthew 12, which is how God protected and preserved Jesus as an infant, his protection and preservation of the king. As I said in the introduction of that hymn, it was written by Horatio G. Stafford in the late 1800s, in the 1880s. And most people know the story of that particular hymn. You've heard me mention it many times. It's a it's a well-loved, well-appreciated uh, story, and because it is something that speaks to every one of us, we can relate to that. We've all gone through uh, difficult, sometimes life-threatening situations. What a lot of people don't know is the rest of the story. We often talk about how we as believers have a have a testimony, a testimony before all mankind and before the angels and that particular hymn is a foundation for an ongoing testimony uh, by the the Spafford family, particular particularly HG Spafford but also his wife Anna. And what most people don't know is what happened afterwards. After they reunited in England and they returned to the United States, they were still feeling rather devastated because of the loss of their daughters. And they determined to leave the United States and to go to to Jerusalem. And they took with them uh, a number of other families from their church in Chicago, and they settled in, in Jerusalem, and they determined to establish a colony now, H.G. Uh, Spafford did not survive but another year or so after they moved to Jerusalem, but they established a group that became known as the American Colony. And uh, it wasn't long before they established a place where people could come to, just to spend time to somehow recover from whatever trials and testing they had uh, faced in life. It was a place of, of relaxation, a place of recuperation, a place where they could be reminded of the grace of God. Uh, as time went by, it also became a place where many uh, uh, expatriates from either England or the United States and sometimes Germany and other other countries in Europe would gather. It later, by the early 1900s, became a sort of a colony location for many uh, explorers and photographers, and they established a hotel there that is still there today called the American Colony Hotel. Place I've wanted to visit many times in my trips to Israel and finally got to this last year in May. And if you go there with a part of any tour group just about, they will play on the over on the speakers on your bus. It is well with my soul. So whether you're coming as a Roman Catholic or a Muslim or with a Jewish group, you get to hear that tremendous hymn. What an ongoing testimony this, in many ways, we never know how what we do in handling the tests of life reflect and are, are an ongoing testimony in ways we can never imagine or never expect. And that's, that's certainly true in the case of that particular hymn. It is an application of the principle that we find in Psalm 23 verse 4, where David, as the psalmist writes, yea, though I walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Now, when he uses that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, he's talking about either a circumstance that is simply a threat of death through disease or through going into combat or battle or some situation that can that contains the threat of death, or perhaps even a situation where, in in which we know we will indeed die, we will indeed face death, and at those times we can trust in the Lord. Well, there's an application of that principle that we see in our chapter in the last half of Matthew chapter two, for in this in these series of events here, we see a true death threat to the infant Lord Jesus. And we see in this chapter how God the Father protected and preserved him even in the midst of that death. Now, it was a great calamity, and it was a terrible thing that happened as uh, Jesus' uh, presence uh, caused such a a paranoid uh, reaction from King Herod that he called upon the slaughter of all of the infants in Bethlehem that were uh, two years of age and under. Now, we often think about that in a large number, but Bethlehem has never been that large of a village, and so I as so I was reflecting upon that this week, uh tragic as the events were, I'm not sure how many infants there would have been in Bethlehem at that time, that were under the age of two, certainly not an enormous number, but any number is too great. And we see how God preserved and protected him. And as I pointed out so many times, God is multitasking in the midst of that uh, preservation because through this we see that not only is he preserving and protecting the Lord Jesus, but he is also providing evidence that the Lord Jesus is indeed the Messiah, uh, because we see four times in this passage a reference to fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so this morning as we look at this chapter, one of the things that I want to emphasize as a uh, sub-theme is how we receive comfort from the Scriptures because we know that they are true. God protects and preserves us that no matter what we walk through in life, no matter how dark things may get, no matter how unstable things may seem, no matter how uncertain uh, the next day or two or weeks or years might appear to us, they're not uncertain in God's thinking. He has given us everything we need to preserve us in the midst of those circumstances and situations. And we know that because we can trust his word. We can trust what he's revealed to us is true. We can trust the promises that are there. And in the same way, we see this evidenced in this passage by the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the life of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we have to learn as we read the Bible is how to read the Bible that's one of the values of our study on sunday night where i'm teaching how to study the bible and in some ways it ought to be uh, it ought to be retitled how to read the bible with understanding and intelligence because that's what basic bible study methods really is is just learning how to properly read and understand the bible and anyone can do this it's not limited because you don't have a uh, the gift of pastor-teacher, some people think, well, only someone with the gift of pastor-teacher can really understand the Bible. And I try to point out that there's a major logic flaw there. The gift of pastor-teacher is a communication gift, not a study and understanding gift. And so if you just take the time, to, anybody can study the word and come to understand it. They just have to know the basic principles of how to do that. And there are clear guidelines for doing that, and it's just a a, a learning process and a growth process. And one of the things that we need to learn is how to deal with these uh, various passages in the New Testament that quote from the Old Testament. Often, as we find in this chapter, they are stated as fulfillments. But we tend to think very literally about what it means when the Scripture says, and thus such and so was fulfilled because we think only, we, we restrict that. I'm going to go through four different ways in which that's used in this chapter. The first way is the way we think that always means we have a, uh, an extremely restricted understanding of what it means when uh, we read in the New Testament that thus an Old Testament passage was fulfilled because the writers of the Scripture use that phraseology in four distinct ways, and uh, they're not all like the first one, even though in Matthew the predominant way in which Matthew uses it is in this first way that we will look at, and that is is it's called a literal prophecy because the quotation comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament. It's, so it's called a literal prophecy with literal fulfillment. Literal prophecy with literal fulfillment. Eleven times in Matthew, Matthew uses this basis, this type of quotation from the Old Testament. But of the four times he uses fulfillment terminology in Matthew 1, Only the first fits this category of literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. The first time we see this is when the Magi appear in Jerusalem and they want to know where the king of the Jews has been born. And we see depicted in Matthew here and in this episode the kinds of response that will become much more evident in the remainder of the gospel. We see that there is a lack of concern, even a lack of curiosity from the religious leaders of Israel. Eventually, this will harden into opposition. Then we also see the somewhat uh, disguised hostility in, as displayed on the part of Herod the Great. Because he is jealous of his power and he wants to disguise that and cloak that so those around him don't see that his real plan is to destroy this pretender. And so when the Magi come and they approach him, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, wanting to know where the King of the Jews has been born, he calls in all of the, all of the scribes. And the chief priests, we read in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and ask them. And we note that they all respond the same way. They understood this. In fact, one of the problems in, in understanding and interpreting uh, this scripture, the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament, is that there are a number of people today that teach that, that uh, the writers of the New Testament really used a lot of, uh, of, a, of strange hermeneutics. And the reality is, and they usually come along and say, well, they use some sort of midrash or they use some sort of rabbinic form of interpretation. But what they're referring to is a form of interpretation that didn't exist in the first century. Scholars, some scholars have demonstrated that up until the destruction of the temple, The predominant way in which the rabbis interpreted the Old Testament was with they tried to stay within context. They weren't using an allegorical or symbolic approach as they did in subsequent centuries. And so they were much more anchored uh, to the text. And so Matthew exhibits some of the ways in which they interpreted and used the Old Testament. So we find that they all respond the same way. They all understood this particular prophecy from Micah chapter five to be a literal prophecy. So they said to him in answer, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet. I want you to notice because we'll get to a point in the last one where it changes, the word prophet changes from a singular to a plural. I'm emphasizing that for those of you who are coming to the Bible study methods class which by the way we won't have tonight because we're we will be having the Stand with Israel event but we'll be starting up again next week with our uh, Bible study methods class. But three quotes we have here in Matthew 2 all say as it is written as it is written by the prophet singular. The last one says as it is written by the prophets. So it shifts to a plural. That becomes significant. But the quote here is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And we read, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, there was also a Bethlehem in the north in Galilee, Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Who will shepherd my people uh, Israel. And so we have a quotation here, a significant quotation related to a literal prophecy from Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and a literal fulfillment. Now when we look at the original prophecy in Micah five, two, we read, But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. now that last part of the phrase who's going forth from of old and from everlasting is not part of the citation in um, in Matthew chapter two verse six. but it's important to go back to that original prophecy. it was present in the Septuagint. And it uses two different Hebrew terms. From of old is mekedem. Kedem is the key word there. The M-I at the beginning is simply the preposition from. Kedem and olam. And kedem and olam are both words that at times can refer to just a long period of time within history. But they also have many passages where they refer to eternity past or eternity future. However, when they are used together, they always indicate eternity past, as we see in passages such as Proverbs eight, twenty two and twenty three, and Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven. Proverbs eight twenty-two, we read The Lord possessed me, that is wisdom. This is when wisdom is speaking, wisdom is personified in Proverbs eight. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Well God is eternal, so there's no literal beginning. Uh, This should be translated probably more from the beginning or indicating the idea from eternity past of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting. See how uh, the first line in 8.23, from everlasting, further clarifies and is synonymous with the phrase at the beginning, mechedum, and it's the use of these two words together They indicate eternity past. Deuteronomy 33.27 does the same thing, the eternal God, Kedem. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So they speak of eternity. They speak of going all the way back to eternity past, a time uh, in the timeless past. And so what we see in Micah 5.2 is a literal prophecy uh, uh, that is focused, that will be fulfilled in the future. In the book of Micah, Micah is uh, prophesying and predicting future judgment and calamity for Israel. But in between these announcements of future judgment, he is also predicting a future time of hope, a future time when the Messiah will come, a future time of restoration of Israel to the land. And the principle here is that God, along with announcements of judgment, always announces his future plan of hope. There is always that mixture of grace with judgment. And so a message that Micah has for Israel is that, yes, God will bring judgment upon this nation for their disobedience, but he will not permanently forget the nation. He will not go back on his promises, and he will fulfill them in the future, and there will be a future time uh, when the nation is restored to the land, under the rulership of a Davidic king. And just as David was born in Bethlehem, so the future Davidic king, the Messiah, will come from Bethlehem and be born in Bethlehem. So the verse in Micah is a verse that speaks of of the origins of the king in terms of his Davidic background, but it is also a message of hope that no matter how dark things may appear for Israel, no matter how uh, terrible things may appear for the Jewish people. There is a future hope. God will not forget or forsake them and God will bring, uh, salvation and deliverance to, uh, the Jewish people. So it is a message of hope even in the midst uh, of difficulty. Now we come to the second category of, of, uh, prophecy. We need to read on a little bit to see what takes place in terms of the reaction of Herod to the uh, search of the Magi. Uh, A couple of things we need to be reminded about by Herod. Herod was a brilliant and brutal king. He was architecturally brilliant. His work in rebuilding and reestablishing the temple, renovating it, actually, they didn't destroy uh, the previous temple, they didn't stop the sacrifices, but he rebuilt the temple mount in what became uh, thought of as almost an eighth wonder of the ancient world. He built a massive harbor at Caesarea by the sea, he built a beautiful city, uh, rebuilt ancient Samaria, renamed it Sebastia, and built it according to all the, the ideas and standards and specifications of a, of a classical Roman city. And there were many, many other projects. He rebuilt Masada. Uh, all of these kinds of things uh, were marks of his architectural genius but as he grew older he became more and more mentally uh disturbed if not deranged and paranoid uh to the point that he he was always uh, afraid that someone in his family was out to kill him in order to uh gain their inheritance he had at one time 10 wives he had eventually had one of his wives uh put to death he had two of his sons alexander and aristobulus put to death under the uh Uh, suspicion that they were uh, conspiring against him to uh, kill him and to seize the throne and to take it from him. And so he is a man that is uh, uh, quite evil. When he had been, I I told you the story before of how when he was first king, the Parthians invaded and he had to flee. He took his family to Masada for protection and then he left and he fled uh, west to Egypt, where he entered into an alliance with uh, Cleopatra, and then from there he went to Rome, where he sought aid from his close friend Augustus. He was very close to uh, Augustus Caesar and um, and and so he went to him for aid, and he was given a Roman army and returned uh, to uh, Israel in order to defeat the Parthians and to reclaim his throne. When he returned, uh, not only did he defeat the Parthians, but he was also responsible for the slaughter of thousands and thousands of Jews. And one of the reasons he killed so many Jews is because they had uh, helped the Parthians. And so he, they, the, the Jews never really liked Herod because he wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite. He was Edomian. And so there was always sort of an undercurrent of rebellion and sedition, uh, within Israel at the time of his reign. And so he would very brutally put, uh, put down, uh, these, uh, these, uh, these conspiracies and slaughter thousands of Jews in the process. This did not endear him, uh, to the Jewish people. And so uh, once again in his paranoia with the Magi showing up, wanting to know who the king of the Jews was, he wants to uh, kill, destroy, wipe out any competition uh, for his authority and for his throne. And so after the Magi showed up, they were warned uh, to not return by way of Herod to tell, uh, Herod had asked them to tell him where he could go to worship this king of the Jews. And so God warned them off and said, go back another route, which they did, according to verse 12. Then in verse 13, we read that the angel uh, who had been communicating to to Joseph, who is not the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, notice the text just says unangel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord always refers in the Old Testament to the, incar- the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came into the, into the world as a as an infant. He appeared many times in the Old Testament. It's the role of the second person of the Trinity to reveal God to the human race. And so he would appear as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, since he has already appeared at the incarnation, the reference is simply to an angel sent from the Lord. And so in verse 13, we, we read that when the Magi had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So the primary purpose for this departure to Egypt is to protect and preserve uh, the young child, the Messiah. But there is a second reason, and that is expressed in verse 15, that they were there until the death of Herod. Now, that was probably not a very long period of time, probably not more than a year at best, maybe much shorter than that. We don't know exactly in terms of this chronology, but it would have been a, uh, a fairly short time, uh, all things considered. They're there in Egypt, they have, uh, they have what they need to survive because of the gifts of the Magi, the gold, the gold of, uh, frankincense and myrrh. And, uh, but that, that departure into Egypt is also, uh, part of a pattern of fulfillment, as we see at the end of verse 15, that it might be fulfilled. There's that fulfillment terminology, the same terminology that is used, um, back in, in chapter 5 it's written by the prophet there uh, here it's fulfillment terminology uh, a little different word one that is often used in a synonymous way uh, that it might be fulfilled by the Lord through the prophet notice it's a singular talking about one individual prophet saying this in the Old Testament saying out of Egypt I will call I called my son now this is a significant prophecy, and we have to understand that this is not a prophecy from the Old Testament. In fact, if we go back to the original citation in Hosea 11.1, Hosea is not talking about a prophecy. He's not making a prophecy. Hosea, in fact, in Hosea 11, is talking about something that happened historically in Israel. He's referring back to the Exodus, and he is rehearsing for the, for his, uh, listeners the fact that just as God protected Israel in the past at the time of the Exodus and, and brought them out of slavery in Egypt, so God will protect them in the future. So Hosea 11.1 1 is not a, in context, is not talking about something in the future, but is instead talking about something in the past. In Hosea eleven one, we read, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." Now this re- references back to Exodus chapter four, verses twenty two and twenty three, which talks about the fact that God has called out Egypt. I mean, called out Israel as His firstborn son, and so there is that emphasis on Israel as a nation. Uh, being identified as a son, but there's a little bit more to this than what we find in uh, in many passages. For example, uh, there's a, a, a extended section in Numbers chapter 22 to 24, which includes three different prophetic oracles from uh, Balaam. Now, I don't want to take the time to go through those in in uh, detail. But in there are three different oracles or prophecies that are announced by this obscure prophet uh, from the Mesopotamian area by the name of Balaam. Balaam is usually known because at one time, as he's resisting God, uh, he wants to go ahead obstinately on his way, and God blocks his path with an angel. Uh, Balaam is riding on a donkey, and the donkey is perceptive and sees the angel. Uh, Balaam does not, and so he is beating his donkey and uh, trying to get him to go forward and everything, and then his donkey talks to him. God gives that ability there to for, to the donkey, and the donkey uh, is reprimanding him for his refusal to obey God because God is blocking his way with this particular angel. That's usually what people think of when they think of, uh, of Balaam. Balaam had been hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel, and three times he attempts to curse Israel, but instead, because of God's authority, he has to bless Israel instead. And he gives these prophecies. In the second, um, in the second oracle, he says three things about Israel. And he refers to Israel corporately, and he uses a third-person plural pronoun. It's very important. He says three things about Israel, that God will bring them out of Egypt. It uses a plural pronoun. That God is for them like the horns of an ox. The horns of an ox are designed for protection uh, in case uh, something is trying to uh, attack the ox and that Israel is like a lion. Those three things are stated about Israel. In the third oracle, he says three things about the Messiah, the coming king. He says, first of all, that God will bring him out of Egypt. Second, he says God is for him, a second, uh, third person singular pronoun in each case. God is for him like the horns of an ox. And that the king is like a lion. Now, what we learn from comparing these two oracles is that it is embedded within Old Testament revelation and thought that Israel as a nation, Israel's history as a nation in some ways is designed to picture or portray elements about the Messiah. And we call this typology, Typology comes from a Greek word, tupos, which means an example or a pattern. And so what we see in the Old Testament is certain people, certain things, and certain events that foreshadow or portray something about the Messiah. The most obvious is, of course, a lamb. A physical lamb was a picture of uh, the sacrifice of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, as the Lamb of God. The Lamb was to be without spot or blemish. This foreshadowed or depicted the fact that the Messiah would be without sin. This is what's called typology. So what we have in this quotation is that Matthew is using Hosea 11.1 1 as, as a Type, typological reference to the Messiah. Now, this isn't something he's just making up. Uh, it's clearly done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's part of the pattern that we see established in the Old Testament. Moses clearly shows in Numbers 23 and 24 that the nation is a type of the Messiah in these two particular uh, oracles. A number of scholars uh, also uh, recognize this so that when uh, Hosea talks about this, Hosea doesn't go back to, he could easily go, have gone back to Numbers 24 as as his reference point, but he's not simply talking about the fact that, that uh, the Messiah is traveling out of Egypt. The, what he wants to emphasize is that the one who is coming out of Egypt is God's son. So he, he rather than quoting from Numbers 24, Matthew is going to literally translate and interpret Hosea 11 from the Hebrew. Uh, his uh, other quotations here come out of the Greek translation of the Septuagint, but the Septuagint is not always identical to what we know of as the Masoretic text. Sometimes it differs. The difference doesn't. Uh, affect the meaning or the accuracy of the meaning in terms of uh uh when God the Holy Spirit uses it it's still accurate and so under inspiration it's without error but what happens here is that instead of quoting from the Septuagint because the Septuagint reads out of Israel I will call my children so the greek of the Septuagint is not correct and so Matthew and this is a great evidence of the inerrancy of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the writers of Scripture, instead of quoting from the Septuagint, goes back to the Hebrew and says, out of Egypt I call my son, because he's emphasizing the sonship of Jesus as the Messiah. So the second example is one of taking a literal historical event and uh, that is designed as a type or a picture designed by God to portray something in the life of the Messiah. Then we have a third usage that comes up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17. What we read in the next section, starting in verse 16, is that Herod, when he realized the Magi were not going to come back to inform him and that he'd been deceived, absolutely lost his temper temper, and went ballistic and sent out his uh, hit squad to go through Bethlehem and to... Uh, kill every male infant under the age of two. Now, does that mean that it's been two years since the uh, star had appeared for the Magi? Well, that's uncertain. It may be two years, but did the star appear to the Magi at the time of Jesus' birth or some time before to allow for travel? We don't know. But I think that Herod is, is going to hedge his bets here and make sure he is going to uh, uh, get the uh, this promised king of the Jews, and so he's he figures if he kills every infant under the age of two, he will certainly get this one. He's not certain exactly what the time frame would be, uh, either, but something within two years would be the parameters. And so he sends his hit team down there, and they slaughter all of the all of the infants. Now, as a result of this, Matthew says this too is a fulfillment of prophecy and we read that in verse 17, this, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. However, what Jeremiah said, again, wasn't a prophecy. It was a description of a historical event that occurred at the time of the uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The quote reads, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Uh, Thus says the Lord, this is describing the grief expressed by the mothers of Israel. They are identified as, the, as Rachel. Rachel, of course, uh, was the wife of Jacob. Rachel has been long dead, so it's not using Rachel literally, but using Rachel as a representation for all of the mothers in Israel. So, <clears throat> Rachel, uh, Rachel is weeping for her children. Now what we should note is that this is taking place in a village called Ramah. Ramah is located north Of Jerusalem in the area of modern Ramallah. It is north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Another thing we should note is the circumstances of this are when the sons of Israel, their young men who were fighting, who had been fighting against Nebuchadnezzar, have now been conquered and they've been taken as prisoners of war. They are alive and they're being marched off to Babylon as prisoners of war and their mothers are weeping because they will never see them again. But they are alive. In contrast, the mothers who are weeping in Bethlehem are weeping because their children, their sons, have been killed and they will never see them again. Third thing we should observe is that uh, with reference to these two historical events. In 586 B.C., the, the, the mothers of Israel are weeping for their adult sons who are being marched off as captives, whereas the application in Matthew chapter 2 is referring to the death of infants. So in one sense, there's little that happens in Jeremiah 31 that is that is uh, exact to what is happening in Matthew chapter 2. What they do have is one point of commonality, and that is the grief expressed by the mothers who will not see their children again. And that is the point that Matthew is making. He is saying what is happening here in in Bethlehem is like what happened in, uh, in Ramah, In 586 B.C. and in that sense it fulfills that as an application of that passage. There are a number of times in, in scripture in the New Testament where Old Testament passages are applied in that way to a New Testament event. In fact, I did something similar to that at the beginning of class when I talked about psalm twenty three four and the principle there about uh, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for thou art with me and I applied that to any circumstance that we might face today so use of Old testament as as application is also part of fulfillment. The fourth way that we see in this passage in, in which there's a fulfillment, comes at the the last uh, part of it. When after Herod was dead, we're told, an angel of the Lord, again, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel of the Lord, an unnamed, an unnamed messenger of the Lord, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Notice, at this point, The angel just says, go back to the land of Israel, doesn't give them specific direction. And then as he arose and he comes back close to the land of Israel, uh, we're told in verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus, this was uh, Herod's son, When Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream, so there's a second revelation to Joseph, he turned aside for the region of, of Galilee and to go to the city of Nazareth. Now the reason he, one of the reasons he does this is because Archelaus of all of Herod's sons was, was the worst. In fact, he may have been even worse than Herod. He was deposed uh, not uh, too long after he began to rule by six B, uh, or four B. Four A.D. rather, or six A.D. He is uh, deposed from his throne when he first is elevated to the position. He's not given the the title King of the Jews, but he's given a title of an ethnarch, which is a smaller rulership. And as part of that, because there was a reaction from the people against him, he on the, on the day that he became ethnarch, he had 3,000 Jews executed. Uh, many other times he had numerous Jews executed, so he was at least as bad as his father Herod. And so God directs Joseph to go to a small village in Galilee called Nazareth rather than to stay in the south. But Matthew sees this as a fulfillment. He says, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled. Notice it uses that word fulfilled again. It's not literal prophetic fulfillment like we normally think of. This is, in fact, this is the most unusual of the four. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Anybody notice anything that changed there? It's not prophet singular anymore, it's prophets plural. There is no place in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. But he's not citing a singular prophet. He is summarizing a a message from all of the prophets in relation to, uh, to the Messiah. Now there are some people who have taken this, and you may have heard this translation in the past, that, it said that, uh, when the Messiah, uh, when when the Messiah comes, he is the, he is from the, the, the root of Jesse, and the word there is Netzer, and, uh, which means root, and so they tie this to, uh, Nazareth, and make a connection that way, and thus this is it, teaching that Jesus is from the root of Jesse. Uh, that's not what is going on here. What's going on here is is something else that's uh, that's a little different, and that is that uh, Nazareth is is a place that has little honor in Israel. Later on in John chapter 1, when Jesus appears to, uh, to, to one of his disciples, this is, how can there be anything good come out of Nazareth? Every area in, in the world seems to have another region that they look down on. Uh, sometimes you, when I went to New England, I was, uh, I learned, uh, not long after I went up there that if you went even further north into Maine, as soon as you crossed the, uh, the border into Maine, your IQ dropped by 50 points. Uh, other places will say the same thing. If you go from Virginia to West Virginia, or you go from Texas to Arkansas, or if you go from Houston to Pasadena, You know, every place seems to have some location nearby where those people just aren't too bright. They're not well respected. Uh, if you go there, you're just, you're just really, uh, slumming at the bottom of the, of the food chain. And Nazareth was that kind of place in Israel. If you came from Nazareth, you were looked down upon. You were worse than a country bumpkin. You didn't have brain cells that recognized each other and you weren't valuable to the, to the culture. And so it's a place where that's not respected and what we see in scripture is uh, prophecies related to the Messiah uh, that he is he bears the reproach of his people uh, ezekiel thirty six thirty says uh, this that at the bottom it talks about the reproach of famine among the nations and um, uh, other passages like Joel 119, O Lord, I cry out to you for fires devoured the open pastures. Oh, excuse me, this is dealing with another issue. Uh, Isaiah, I want to skip over that. Um, what we see is, for example, in Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, that uh, the servant is uh, under reproach. He is uh, rejected and despised by his people. And so this summarizes that throughout the different uh Old Testament prophecies, there is this, uh, there's this representation of the Messiah as someone who will be rejected and despised by his people. The idiom by the time of the first century is that someone who's rejected and despised by his people is a reproach, and he is a Nazarene. And so this is how Matthew uses this. He's sort of summarizing all of this reproach terminology from the prophets and saying that, in summary, he would be called a Nazarene. That's saying the same thing as. And so what we see in this chapter is a provision by God to protect the Messiah, to get him out of the way of, of Herod's attempt to destroy all of the infants, number one, and then to provide a place of refuge for him to return in Nazareth where he's out of the way where he can grow up, where he can mature, and he can uh, achieve his position uh, by in his adulthood to present himself as the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior uh, for his people. And in the same way, we know that God provides for us that no matter what circumstances we might face, no matter what what situation, God has a plan for our life, and God is going to protect and preserve us And one of the ways he does that is through his word. And just as we see in the life of Jesus the fulfillment of God's word, we can trust God's word to be accurate and true so that we can depend upon it and we can lean upon it in times of adversity and in times of of, uh, hardship and in times when even our life is threatened. Because Jesus is our Savior. The Word of God, the f- literal Word of God, is represented in the living Word of God who is the one who came to save us from our sins with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to uh, reflect upon the way in which you're uh, you're, you fulfill your promises from the Old Testament, and that there are over a hundred different uh, promises from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus' first advent, so that we can be confident that not only that your word is true, but that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the the Savior of the world, the one sent by you uh, to be our the Savior from our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. That by simply trusting in him, we can have eternal life. Now, Father, there may be someone here this morning who's never trusted in you, never realized that salvation is not based upon how good they are, it's not based on their uh, morality or their going to church or their membership in church or any of the other human factors that are emphasized, but that salvation is based only on trust in Christ, that Jesus died for our sins and the issue is to believe on him. As Paul expressed it to the Philippian jailer, We are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. It's very simple. And, Father, we pray that you might drive this truth home to anyone here that is not a believer and that they might make that a reality in their life today. The instant you trust in Christ, God the Father knows that you are trusting in him and him alone, and at that instant you are saved, you are given new life, you are regenerate, you are made a child of God, and that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge and comfort each of us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.